Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed is a weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 123 is recorded live July 26, 2012. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson, and here's a few of the things we'll be talking about. We have politicians, sculptures, and ship bells. But before we get on with that, I'd like to welcome my co-host for this week. We have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? Very well. Glad to be back, and it's been a big breather for us. I'm glad to get back into the uh, swim of things. Oh, yeah. It's been, it seems like it's been forever. A couple weeks, at least, going on a month. And then we also have a uh, guest Special guest, guest host, co-host coming in. We have Dave Tonneman. How are you doing today, Dave? Doing great, Darren. Excellent. Very good. Yeah, I, I apologize for everybody. I didn't. I was hoping that we I wouldn't miss any shows, but I had to travel for work, and it was one of those things for a four-hour meeting. I had to fly into Kansas City, go to the meeting, and then fly back, and I did that all in just a little over 24 hours, so... A lot of airtime, and I just happened to be in the air when we would normally be recording a show. It was my first experience with Southwest. Now, I, one thing I do like about Southwest, since I had all that time sitting on a plane waiting to take off, uh, is that they do let you take scuba gear on as checked bag. So I thought that was nice. So as I, you know, because I'm, I'm I'm incredibly cheap, and I like the idea that you don't have to pay for for extra baggage. And I had that, and then the following week I was taking my son and his troop to uh, Boy Scout camp. And I, uh, there was just no way I was going to have an Internet connection out there, even with a wireless puck. So it's pretty good. I, I, I was still tempted. You know, Thursday at about 8 o'clock, I was thinking maybe I could, you know, sneak over to somebody's house and hotwire in. But uh, we just skipped. So two weeks. So I, I think that's the first time we've ever missed two weeks. So I think we've missed a week before, but, but never two weeks in a row. I'm sure tonight's presentation will more than make up for it. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the, the quality will just be oozing from the show. Get all over the electronics and, and everything. And you've had plenty of time to work on a joke. I, I, I did. I actually started, you know, normally I'm starting about 10 minutes before the show goes live, and I started a full 20 minutes early this week. So it should be really good. In fact, there's a choice. I'll give you, at the end, I'll give, give you in the chat room a choice of topics, and we can decide which direction we'll go. So if you haven't gotten a beverage, go ahead and fill up, and we'll get to be talking about some scuba. The first article up, which we will also paste in the chat room, and uh, the, being off for this many weeks, we could have we could do news for two or three hours, which which I'm not going to torture you through. So you make sure that you head over to our Scoop It site, which is www.scoop.it forward slash t forward slash scuba obsessed, and we also have links. Uh, frequently from Facebook and also our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. And there's plenty of articles, and we're only going to touch a few of them. This first one is uh, the widow of Wes Skiles is uh, saying that it was the equipment that caused her, her husband's death. This one's out of the courthouse news service. Uh, Wesley Skiles, who was a well-known National Geographic filmmaker, while shooting underwater uh, footage 
drowned. And his widow is saying that it was his dive right scuba gear that malfunctioned. And this she's claiming to the Palm Beach County Court. Uh, Terry Skiles claims that dive right knew the oxygen monitoring system had a propensity to malfunction because it had been recalled multiple times. But dive right ignored serious quality control issues and tampered with the scuba equipment evidence after the fatality. And again, this is all according to her. You know, we should say alleged and unproven. Everybody gets their day in the court of law. Uh, She's suing Lamarck, Lamar Tech, Inc., which does business as Dive Right, Dive Gear Express LLC, uh, which is Dive Right Express, uh, Phil Express LLC, uh, Mark Derrick, uh, Jurgensen Marine and Analytics Industry. She alleges negligence, strict liability, breach of warranty, conspiracy to spoilate evidence, and civil conspiracy. So everybody needs to remember that these are going to, this is frequently what a lawyer will put in when they're going to sue somebody. And then the article goes on. Most of the listeners of the show know how a rebreather works. Um, it's similar to a air tank, but instead of releasing the exhalations, it filters them through a carbon dioxide, uh, it filters them, filters out the carbon dioxide for the user to rebreathe. Uh, a third party bought the rebreather to dive right for a maintenance check, and uh, after dive right replaced a few parts, it said the rebreather was good to go. Skiles was in the complaint. So she says in the complaint. She says her husband used the rebreather while working on Boynton Beach to try to get footage of a Goliath grouper for National Geographic film Speed Kills. However, the widow says, due to an unexpected catastrophe failure of the subject, the, op, the O2 Optima FX breather during the dive, Wesley Skiles passed out underwater and died. The tragedy would have not occurred but for the torturous conduct of the defendant's dive right, etc., everybody else who was listed. The subject three breathers using intended at the time of the incident in a manner reasonably foreseeable by the defendant. And it goes on and on. Now, Mac, you said something when you read through it that you, let, let's get to the meat of this. What were they was she saying really? Well, first item you'll notice that she claims that that was in July 2010. That's a typical lawyer trick to start the lawsuit process without identifying who you're going to sue until a very short period of time before the time limit runs out. So they're trying to get their ducks in a row done during this two years. You have no clue you're going to be sued. Therefore, you don't start doing records. You don't do things that you would do had you knew you were going to be sued and you're going to forget stuff because you didn't make records because it wasn't a major item. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So two years later, you get hit with a a deposition and it's like, say what? And then you're going to have to make comments based on something two years before. And, you know, they've had time to get their questions, to do their research, and you're being hit right out of the blue. I find that typical of lawyers. Now, if I was a lawyer, I'd probably do the same thing. So what can I say there? It's kind of the the nature of lawyers. Yeah, yeah, but it's still sort of sucky. Uh, The other item is you take a look at the number of people who have passed on using a rebreather, and generally it's because they ignored their indicators for whatever reason. I find it hard-pressed for her to come back and say, well, her husband didn't ignore it. It was strictly the fault of the equipment. Well, one thing that I'm trying to figure out was this didn't sound like it was his rebreather. It sounded like it was one that he had borrowed. True, but it had been worked on by a different group. Right. But I know a lot of it with a rebreather, and I'm assuming that he was rebreather certified. They don't go into anything about what training he had. 
but I, I mean, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with having a used rebreather, but you have to get your own certification and understand that rebreather before you should be diving it. And just like Bob, he, he disassembles his, he, he maintains it, he validates it's working to his satisfaction prior to diving. Mm-hmm. And he's very anal about the aspect of, hey, if I got an error indication, even though I got you know one out of three and I've got still two to go, I bail. Well, a perfect example of that was Bob this weekend. Uh, we'll get to it later in the show, but he scrubbed his second dive because uh, the badger in his rebreather went low. So even though, I mean, you, we've all probably done it in a dive computer where, you know, it will start to flash time to replace. You know, you know you've got three, four, five dives that you can do on it. But, you know, in the case of a re- rebreather, it's not a, something that you want to take a chance. Right. He didn't take that edge and, and stretch it. He was conservative. But since nobody was down there, and again, we don't know who was with him, what the kind of results of the testing, you know, how deep he was, how long he'd been down. I mean, it'd be nice really to know that kind of information. But ultimately, it looks like to me a lot of the, the fatalities that happened is because people did not, were not strictly adhering to the rules and, and the way they learned to do it in a conservative manner. Right. Right. So it's, it's going to be interesting to read the results of this. Well, maybe one of the positive things that will come out of this is that they will, because it will be in court, will be able to get information about what did happen. Well, Personally, I'll, think, stick, I'll, I'll stick to uh, open circuit. <laughs> or semi-closed. Yeah, or semi-closed or semi-closed. is interesting, too. Now, you, you said semi-closed, not semi-clothed. Say what? <laughs> uh, you're talking about one of those semi-clothed? Rebreathers, right? Where you it basically cycles it for four or five times and then exhaust it out, so you just extend your bottom time or your your air tanks. Yeah, I'm a big fan of just bring more air with you. Yeah, well, and that's one thing I I was thinking as I as I read this, he could have a bailout, but again, if his oxygen sensors had gone bad and he didn't realize that he was getting to one end of the scale or the other, uh, you know, you, he wouldn't have had he wouldn't have been aware that he needed to go to a bailout. True. Yep. The word catastrophic failure, I don't know what that means yet. Yeah, I'm, I'm adverse to the sticker that occurs on some rebreathers that says this device can and will malfunction, and when it does, it will kill you. Well, on every parachute and, and harness that you get, your container assembly, it definitely states that you can do everything right, and it will still kill you. So well, there's no, you know, there's no, none of these, hey, probably won't, it's like, it probably will eventually try to kill you. Well, did you see the, uh, on Facebook, the post that uh, Rich Senewick from Diver Sync put out there for his new dive computer? No, I didn't. It, it was a, a, a shot from one of the front page of the manual. It says, uh, this dive computer does have bugs. We just haven't found them yet. That's the uh, Shearwater, and the introduction in Shearwater manual is the most succinct message that this computer will fail, and it will uh, it will kill you if you trust this computer by itself. And that's part of what the dumbing down of diving is, is it's, well, the BC takes care of you having to learn about having good weight, trim, and balance. Uh, the computer means you don't really have to think about what you're doing. It'll tell you what to do. You know, I'm a real good proponent in how much time and how much gas. And I'll use the computer for a backup, but I've already calculated it before I dive. Well, that kind of leads us to this next one. We're, we're starting on the negative diving. Maybe that's what happens when we're not in the show for two weeks. A nurse says deadly scuba accident possible, possibly avoidable. And this is according. This is from a nurse who was on a 
scuba diving excursion. Uh, she says that inactivity by the crew and faulty medical equipment were involved. Uh, she says, I've been shaking all day. Uh, this was around 9.50 on Tuesday. She, her friend and fellow registered nurse um, and the crew of the, uh, the dive charter found uh, a diver, Murphy, floating in the ocean unresponsive. According to the nurse, a young male employee of the scuba charter pulled Murphy on the boat, and that's when uh, uh, the two nurses started to uh, try and revive her. Uh, he says that, she says that's when the, the charter crew failed to act. I said, did you call the Coast Guard? She barked at the boat's captain, and he said no. The Coast Guard said his team was called at 10 a.m., at least 10 minutes after uh, Murphy was found. She says, well, they were trying to save Murphy on the boat. The diver Murphy had been diving with were still underwater. She said, I need you to get everyone on the boat. Where is the Coast Guard? Uh, she also says the medical equipment on board was faulty. They had dry-rotted emergency masks on board. She says, as for the tank attached to it, the first one was empty, and the employee on the boat threw the other tank overboard. The poor young man kind of freaked out. He said it was going to blow, and he threw the uh, oxygen overboard. Uh, the county EMS and Coast Guard met the boat on the way back to shore. The coroner's office later pronounced Murphy dead. So uh, she says, I don't know if the outcome was going to be different, but I know it would have had a better chance. Now, I, I like the wording there. It had a better chance had the gear been working. And I think if you talk to Mr. Bob, he has an example of something similar years ago. Now, was he on a charter? charter? I will definitely make sure that the O2 is working, but take a look at the guys. Most of the guys are carrying their own when we go up to Sheboygan. We've got two um, Dan sets of O2, the club set, you know. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, having oxygen to me is the minimum that yes. functions. And, again, if, if you got a problem, you call the Coast Guard. Yes. But, again, how long he'd been out there, it would be interesting to read the autopsy to find out that they have a heart attack, medical condition. Was he effectively dead when they brought him on board? Well, well, right. That's what the autopsy will hopefully be able to identify, you know, was that what was going on. Right. But uh, I, I don't think it's too much to ask when you get a charter boat to ask what kind of uh, uh, equipment they have. And a recall system, and that's something we're working on too. Yes. In fact, uh, we have somebody sent us a letter uh, just in the last few days and want us to talk about uh, underwater communication. So we're going to do a little bit of segment on that as well. Um, now, one thing they did say is they said when asked if they had other diving-related deaths, uh, the captain responded, it happens occasionally in this business. If you've been doing it long enough, it can happen from time to time. So how is that for a non-answer? Well, he didn't necessarily say his business, but in the business, as I would imagine he's talking about doing charters. Yeah. Yeah. But the question was whether he had had any. Yeah. So he could have said uh, no. <laughs> so, oh, but uh, yeah, let's, let's get to something a little bit more positive. We have a state, that, certainly. state that is having the largest underwater sculpture ever, New Jersey. Uh, and this is a follow-up to one we had earlier in the year, the biggest uh, underwater sculpture in the world, a 47-foot concrete horseshoe crab created by marine biologist instructor Chris now, how do we how do we say this? I, I think what's that? Wojcik. Wojcik. Okay, I, I'm thinking people are just inventing names that I can't pronounce. Wojcik uh, scheduled to be sunk Wednesday on the Axel Carlson Reef. Now, uh, I said Sunday, I meant Wednesday, and that would have been yesterday. So it should be provided the weather didn't go bad. Uh, should be in the water now. The New Jersey Division of Fish and Wildlife Artificial Reef Program. Has some of the best artificial reefs in the nation, but most are composed of rocks, concrete, boats, barges, and other clean debris. 
that provide habitats for 150 species of marine life on what is normally just sandy bottoms. And they go on and on about different things. So, but that, that'll be interesting. I'd, I'd love to go and dive on that. And I, I would also like to see more of that happening in the Great Lakes, or I say more of it, some of it happening yeah. in the Great Lakes. The only one that I'm aware of that's been done, other than the occasional wreck sinking, is Chicago made an artificial reef of rock. But I'm, uh, I think that one's off Shedd Aquarium, but I, I haven't heard anybody who, who dives on it. Well, I wonder if the breakwater off of Michigan City counts. I think it counts, in my mind. Yeah, it's just like what we're talking. Yeah, and I, and I think it works real well. And again, yeah. another thing we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later in the show. So we go we go from uh, sculptures to lawyers. I'm, I'm being negligent in the chat room. Uh, lawmakers scuba dive to undersea lab in Florida Keys. South Florida congressional representatives are scuba diving to an undersea research lab that is set to shut down. The National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration owns the Aquarius Reef Base in the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary. The lab allows scientists studying coral reefs to live and work underwater for days without coming up for air. Uh, the current uh, administration has cut the lab's $3 million annual funding. Unless private funding is secured, Aquarius will close. It's the last government-funded underwater research lab. So they're they're going down there just to create awareness and get in the press. Must be an election year. <laughs> nice. Now three three million. I mean that. I mean that's a kick, uh, a drop in the bucket. That's paper clips. Yeah. Now they say the Obama administration is doing that, but but don't the uh, budgets get approved by Congress? Yes. So, and we spend billions and billions, and they're getting press time over a three million dollar. Item something doesn't smell right here. So I like your lead-in for the next one, Darren. <laughs> oh yeah, well of course that uh, we go from from lawyers and uh, you know, but we really know what they're after by doing the diving, and that is the uh, uh, yesterday Wednesday launched the start of the mini lobster season in Florida. This is that time of the year where old fat guys who don't dive any other time of the year put on their dive gear and. Uh, Try and get underwater without having a heart attack. Well, I like that last part. You know, try to get underwater without having a heart attack. That's, that's good. <laughs> that's that's always a good goal. That's that's my goal is to try and. You have know, I've always attack. wondered: should they rephrase that? Because there are still minimum sizes. You cannot actually harvest a mini lobster. <laughs> no, it's you're, you're getting the full size lobster, I believe. Yeah, the the mini lobster season. I believe it's just two days, isn't it, Mac? Yes, my, my article comes up. Okay, posting in there. Yeah, so it uh, starts on it starts on midnight on Wednesday, July 25th, and they hit the water on the mini lobster season. Law enforcement is expected to draw large crowds. And most of the items I had there was common sense, file a float plan, make sure your vessel's in good operating condition, duh, make sure you have the safety equipment, dive with a buddy, and don't dive while being intoxicated. Yeah, don't dive intoxicated. Oh, that's and really cool. Cook the lobster once you get it to shore. Don't do it with you in the water. Uh, the limit is six per person per day for Monroe County, 12 per person per day for the rest of Florida. Night diving is prohibited. During that two-day period. Now, why do you say it's, why start the season at midnight if you can't night dive? <laughs> that I don't know. It gives, you got... days, gives you the night to get in position if you're offshore. So they're not going to arrest you for having it. You just can't get in the water. Uh, must be three inches or longer, measured in the water, which we know three inches is just huge. Yeah. That's carpus. Yeah. Yeah, big crawfish. 
Now those are uh, spiny lobsters too, they're not the claw ones, correct? Right. Yeah. Takes more of those to get a good meal. Yeah. So that's what, what they tend to have in Florida. And the purpose yeah. of the mini lobster season is to get uh, two days of uh, of lobstering in before the commercial guys get to go in with the traps. And that's eight months long. Yep. So I don't think we could do too bad in, in two days when they get eight months. Yeah, eight months with traps. I'm, I'm not sure why you can't dive at night, though, since they obviously lobster fish at night by putting their traps out. Good question. And I don't know, is that rule the same for the regular season? Because they have mini lobster season, but don't they have a regular lobster season where you can take lobster? from? I really diving? don't know. I, I'd imagine they do, but I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't follow that rule because I just don't get a chance to do it. might be worth it, though, sometime. Because I know they sure are tasty. Oh, yeah. Those are the kind of bugs you like to eat. Oh, yeah. And then we have some kids doing some scuba diving. This awesome. is one of those programs that I'd love to have up here. This one's down there in Florida, too. wonder if they get to do good lobster diving. Uh, children in foster care are more likely than other children who don't have a lot of stories to share about summer family trips. For many of them, being able to experience life outside the routine of mealtimes in schools, other words... Uh, Outside of the temporary of what a temporary home can provide can be a struggle. Uh, seven teenagers are going to have a story to tell this year. Family Support Services of North Florida is going to uh, teach them how to scuba dive. Uh, the youths for a week, ages 15 through 17, are going to go down to Florida Keys for scuba diving. The program is called Splash. Scuba promotes life goals and healthy living. And do the first open water dive after a week of pool practice. Uh, once successful complete a dive, they'll be certified divers. As for them, that summer experience is just not learning a new skill and being exposed to possibilities, but one on bonding and teamwork as well. Uh, 17-year-old, uh, she says, I'm really excited to be with my buddies. A few times, some of us wanted to go up and join on scuba, but we pushed, I'll give up on scuba, but we pushed each other on. Now I get to have this great experience with our friends. Uh, the CEO of the Family Support Services, Lee K-Work says part of our job is to give them a chance to do things that normally they wouldn't get to do. We try to give these children a broader experience and help them develop a great new self-esteem and confidence because many of them have already been traumatized. And it goes on and on. There was one. Yeah, this is just this is another example of using scuba diving for people that are trying to recover from incidents, um, like the SUDS program, the soldiers undertaking disabled scuba. Yep. Um, it's just another example of how scuba can help people get their lives back in order. Well, and especially for kids uh, who may, may not don't come from a background where they get a lot of confidence, there's something about overcoming obstacles that you normally wouldn't be able to do. If you don't have training and you don't have the gear, you can't go 35 feet underwater and spend 10, 15 minutes. Or, well, you can, but the, the outcome's not going to be too good. But when, you know, when they have something unique that they can do that most don't get a chance to do and what they get to see, it gives them something to look forward to. Now, so not, to be, not to be a little negative, but did you read the comments at the bottom of the article? Uh, I did. Let me see. Which one are you talking about? All the way down to the bottom. Scroll down. Comment section. Oh, the comments. No. You you, you mean the troll bait? <laughs> uh, that may be exactly what nice. that is. Uh, let's see. Uh, they say FFS is a joke. They have redesigned their program for the administrative staff to tag along their vacations on taxpayer dollars. These kids get to learn how to shop on these trips. Are you serious? I guess foster parents don't know how to shop. They're kicking kids with them on trips. The kids are just products at their vacation expense. This is from a foster parent, too. Is that the one you were talking about? <laughs> yep. I like the way you said troll bait. Yeah, because you've got, I mean, the, the uh, 
you know, the, the, the comments, you, you get all sorts of stuff uh, going on. But, you know, I can see it depends on how they fund this program. There you go. I would hate to think that the state, you know, is putting somebody who this is their job, you know, annually to come up with this, with a, what would be considered a junket. Yep. And that the breakout per foster kid is, you know, let's say it was 50,000 per student. They send seven, you know, that's, that'd be, that'd be way too much. You know, there, there there's a lot, there's other ways of raising the money instead of uh, getting the state to foot the bill. So, yeah, and we don't have that information here, and they didn't talk about it in there. You know, they they do have a program name, Splash. So, you know, maybe maybe it is something that the the state's doing, but we don't know. I mean, there's a lot of those states' programs where they're industry funded. Being in Florida, you'd have to think that there's some industry support. Since Florida would be more common for diving, and you know has a lot more activity all year round. One would think, like you just said, yeah. it would be more of a normal, whereas up in Wisconsin, Michigan, it probably would not be. Well, and there's nothing to say that they don't, that the the program needs its own equipment. Yeah. You you wouldn't have to have dive gear that is owned by the organization when they could run it, especially if it's only a week. Or donated. Yeah. It, well, and, and to bring that up, the, the one thing that I was uh, hoping to do with uh, Scout Camp is the week that I was at Scout Camp was also the week they were teaching scuba diving to the scout. Now, one thing is the scout camp did get gear donated to it. So they do have their own scuba gear that, from what I understand, is being maintained by a shop. So uh, I didn't see the, the actual gear itself, but uh, they did get a donation of it. So if a scouting organization or camp can, can do that, I would think that a, a state would be able to. They're on useless programs. Why not waste a little on a useful program? Yeah. Well, now they got them trained. They have all sorts of things they can do: remove tires and, you know, fix <laughs> seawalls and scrape barnacles off boats. I mean, you put those kids to work. Quite. I'm seeing a stream of articles out of Florida. Yeah. Are what what you, is it with Florida? Jen's in to get back. Well, uh, Jim's wife, uh, Jim Cleman's wife, is down in Florida this week, so. Oh, maybe we're maybe Jim and I are just jealous that we didn't get to go. Yeah, that's yeah. true. <laughs> you are. Yeah. Well, if if you can't get to dive in Florida, maybe you can at least do what these next two divers did, which is they uncovered two wrecked planes. Again, this one's from Florida, St. Augustine, Florida. Uh, Florida divers un- uncovered two wrecked planes in the sea floor. One diver, Joe Kistel, the executive director of TISIRI and his his cruise dive and map artificial reefs. A couple weeks ago, about 20 miles off the coast of St. Augustine, Florida, they found some metal objects in the sand area of the ocean floor. One metal object led to another. What's that, Dave? I hope they were very shallow. 20 miles offshore. And I looked at the videos when they went down and were tagging these, and they looked a little deep. Not but deep, as, deep, but they weren't but, like but as, if you are. But as Darren's about to hit, they got low on oxygen in their tanks. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you just love that comment? Yeah. We knew exactly what it was. We could see a bent propeller and an engine low on oxygen in their tanks. He and his crew snapped pictures and went back to the boat. So this is where where we call out the author of as uh, not doing proper fact-checking. Uh, he says uh, they were searching the name of the engine and the planes in which they have on them. He prepared for another dive this past weekend, aiming to find a serial number. It will probably let us identify the plane, Kistel said. 
this weekend brought them to another underwater surprise. Well, they did not find a serial number. They found something else in the wreckage. It hit me real quick. We just found another engine. So we just went from a single engine to a multi-engine aircraft. That kind of opens a whole different can of worms. Since Kistel's first discovery a couple weeks ago, fishermen suggested they look at another site off the coast. Fisherman says he thought there was a plane there too. So while out in the water this weekend, his team went to the other site as well. Sure enough, they found a second plane. We have a whole other aircraft site four miles away from the first site. They saw a fuselage, wings, and a tire at the second site. They said it was a bigger debris field than the first. Some historians from the county have written saying that they wonder if the aircraft could be wreckage from a World War II scout plane. Uh, Kistel explained that those planes would scout for German U-boats. There were a bunch of them, but supposedly three or four of them went down. He checked with the FAA and the NTSB. He said no conclusive word about where the first plane was or who it belonged to. He has not had time to provide agencies with information on a second site as of yet. Uh, he says his group doesn't typically dive plane wrecks. It's not the thing that we normally do. However, now he's aiming to identify not one but two planes. Could be some significant aircraft or provide some closure to the family. The initial video on that was actually very good, uh, and the guy presented it in the same way, not to try to you know make a big big deal out of it. It's interesting. He would like to resolve the issues. Uh, the pictures of the plane, the one engine I looked at, uh, looked like a four banger. Looked like a, a small Continental or a light coming. It wasn't the big uh, radials like you associate with the Navy planes. And I didn't see a picture of the second engine, but I did look at the body of the fuselage and the tire. Mm -hmm. And again, it did not look like any kind of warbird. It looked like civilian aircraft. Okay. But it could have been a single engine, you know, on a couple of them uh, for spotters. Yeah. The Cubs. Or, or a smuggler. Or yes, a smuggler. It is Florida after the home of Miami Vice. Yeah. Now, did you, did you pick up the theme of uh, where they were getting some of their information from? Well, fishermen is always the place you go. The fishermen. So if you're out there looking for wrecks, you always want to check out with your local fishermen first. Make friends with them. Do whatever because they, they give some excellent spots. And then so when we're not discovering new objects, we like to uh, be identifying the ones we already discovered. And that brings us to a diver who is able to find information to lead to the naming of a 109-year-old shipwreck. It was a northeast-built steamer. Uh, he, the diver identified the shipwreck that lay in the seabed for more than 100 years. Uh, the vessel was built in Sunderland in 1892, sank in a collision in 1903. He was diving on what had been known for many years as Wreck 355 near Hastings in Sussex when he discovered the ship's bell bearing its name, SS Ladoga. Uh, Mr. Hodkins, a training officer for Midhurts Divers in Whaling Garden City, Hart. Hertfordshire, found the bell is one of the most exciting and valuable things a diver could find. It's usually the only positive means of identification, and I would, I'd add on to that other than the name on the side of the boat. He was diving with 11 other members in the mid-Hertz divers from the boat run from Dive 125 based on Eastbourne when he made the discovery on Saturday. Before jumping in, the boat skipper told us to bring up anything that might help us identify the wreck. As I was swimming along, I saw something round the sand. At first, I thought it was a plate. As I got a bit closer... I thought it could be a bucket, but as I picked it up, I realized it was a bell. The brass bell bears the words SS Lagoda, 1892, London. I bet that felt good. Yeah, that, that's that's kind of like the Holy Grail, isn't it? You're... The bell. And it's and it's a wreck. That, how many people have gone over that same spot again and again? 
Well, like we know on the Havana, every year the sand comes and the sand goes. There's still a belt missing on Andrea Doria. They've only recovered me. two out of three. That surprised me because the Doria was dove the second day, well, the axe of the day it sank. Yeah. The second bell was recovered last summer, I think. Yeah, it seems like there was something where they had recently recovered one. That was mid last summer, I think, June or July, and there's still a third bell missing. With the number of divers have been on Doria, and they're all wanting the bell. That surprises me. Now, if you're a dive charter operator, probably the best thing you could do would be to find the bell and hide it, and not tell anybody you found it. Well, I noticed nobody seemed to be concerned about raping the wreck. Well, this is in the UK off the coast, so. Yeah, that's off the coast of Jersey. <laughs> oh, a, a different one. And then the the wrap up the news for the week. We have a new dive quarry makes a splash. This one's from Newark. Uh, David Sheldon usually likes to dive Lancaster Quarry every time he wants a scuba dive. So when he heard of a new dive destination was opening in Newark, he decided to give it a try. Uh, after spending an hour underwater at North Point Dive Quarry on Saturday, the Columbus man came to the surface excited by what he saw. He said he saw he the morning he spent the morning exploring sunken boats and swimming alongside paddlefish. He says this definitely will be a favorite. It's fun. Its layout is great. Now, Dave, you wouldn't know anything about that, would you? I don't know a whole lot about the place. I probably only have about a hundred hours underwater there. <laughs> Ever see any paddlefish? Yes. But, Quite a um, bit. Um, I actually hand-carried a majority of them into the water. One at a time? One at a time. Gave so them mouth to mouth to make sure they'd make it? No, we just kind of swish them around, and occasionally you have to throw them in and sting them. Now, how many paddlefish were put in? I, I heard Rich on his show say millions. 410. Oh, 410. So they knew exactly how many there were there. Yes, 410. It's an agreement. It's an agreement that we have. Uh, actually, the city has with a company called Big Fish Farms. They grow paddlefish for the caviar and also for the flesh. And the flesh of the, of the paddlefish is currently being used to replace shark fin huh. in a lot of recipes. Hmm. Now, are they going to? Are they all going to go eventually as farmed fish, or will some be? Used? Well, what they do, what they do is uh, the paddlefish reach sexual maturity after about eight or nine years. <laughs> so at nine years, at nine years, they come in and they use a seine net that is a very large mesh because a nine-year-old paddlefish. It's pretty big. Um, most of them are somewhere in the area about four to five foot long. So they're pretty big. So they use a large mesh net, and they troll, and they drag the net through, and they harvest paddlefish that they find. They're going to miss a few, but then they restock them. And it's it's a great agreement. The uh, The city makes money from the sale of the paddlefish, and all we do is provide the uh, place for them to live. Excellent. Now, I assume they have more than one location, that this isn't the only place. Oh, yeah. going in. Yes, yes. Uh, Big Fish Farms has many places that they uh, deal with. Uh, they're growing. It's a very small company out of the uh, northern Kentucky, southern Ohio area near Cincinnati. It's run by a husband and wife, and they're doing good business. Now, uh, kind of back on the quarry, the quarry hadn't been used in about 20 years. So what was it doing? Was it just... Uh, it was uh, stagnating. Um, stagnating? The quarry is actually a, in a park uh, that is in an area that's been donated by the T.J. Evans Society. They uh, they put it on a long-term lease of the city for a small amount, and this northern quarry has been off limits to the general public for two reasons. One part was really overgrown and just kind of a mess, and there were some remnants. The one part was really ugly. The other reason that it was off limits, the northeast corner is home to two bald eagles. 
so it was declared a, a natural resources area and off limit to the general public. Um, and it kind of started out in, a, in an awkward manner. Uh, the shop that I'm with approached the city and was just, they were just discussing with them, what are the chances we can check it out, you know, do some fish surveys for you, possibly do some classes in there. And it evolved greatly beyond that to where now we have a locally available dive spot. Um, and I see Lisa posted in chat room. I will tell you, Lisa, that the eagles like to fly over to the west end of the quarry to go fishing. And it's awesome to watch a bald eagle fishing. And they do it daily. So odds are you'll be able to see. So, so what you do is you convince your dive buddy to wear a uh, a fish hat. Awesome. I see a GoPro video in the making. <laughs> But, uh, you know, we've opened it up now. We had a grand opening last weekend, had a great turnout. We appreciated all the divers that came out. Uh, we're getting a lot of questions, a lot of divers wanting to know, because currently it's only open Saturday and Sunday, 8 to 8, and a lot of people are wanting to be able to come out and dive during the week because it is located in a city. It is a city park. Um, we're currently still doing a lot of work in the park. The city is repaving the road coming in. We've got uh, the power company putting poles in to run power down to the dive area. And we really don't currently want people in the mix with that kind of work going on. Plus, we're still doing some stuff in the quarry. Now, now the intention, like, say, by next year to have it open during the week? We're hoping that, we're hoping that next year, when we open for the spring season, to have it open on a honor system through the, uh, through the week. Like a lot of quarries, there'll be a, an envelope. You put your money in, fill out the waivers, sign it, drop it in the, in the slot, and uh, it, it should be available by spring. We're also we're also uh, going to be hosting some events, some midweek dives this year still from the shop on days that we know that no work is going to be going on in the quarry so that the local divers can come out midweek and just get wet and cool off and get a little dive in. So how how many people did you have turn out for this first weekend? Uh, I'm I'm going to say, I don't recall the exact number, but I want to say it was close to 40. That's excellent. And on the weekends, we'll also have a concession available. It'll be running currently scheduled 10 to 2, um, and that's variable depending on the crowd and being a new being a new enterprise, we're going to have to kind of watch what's going on and, and adapt from that. But right now we plan on having a concession open from 10 to 2, Saturday and Sunday, where we can uh, offer you air fills. We have rental tanks available, rental weights available. Uh, we have your typical save-a-dive stuff, uh, snacks, water, Gatorade, Monster. And it's it's just a great, great thing to have locally available. Uh, the one thing that really surprised me last weekend were the number of divers that we had come out that had not been in the water for many years because it wasn't convenient. And a lot of them were older divers. I will uh, stop with that explanation before Max smacks me the next time I'm around. <laughs> and they hadn't been in the water in quite a few years. And they came down because it's local, it's convenient, it's easy access to them. And any time that we can get divers into the water and diving, I'm excited. Now, how far of a drive is it from where you live to get there? Uh, from where I live, it takes me about 20 minutes. Uh, from our shop, it's three miles. Oh, that's excellent. It is it is right at the edge of the city of Newark. So we have a large community of divers. A lot of them are traveling divers. They're not you know, like us and obsessed. Um, most of them probably won't be in a wetsuit the day after Thanksgiving or New Year's Day. 
but you know they're still divers and they they enjoy diving and now they have the opportunity to dive locally and maybe some of them you know might go to the Caribbean once a year and now they have the opportunity to dive before they travel and keep their skills up. Now they said there were some boats in there. What kind of boats do you have there sunk? Oh well, we have sunk uh to the best of my recollection nine boats. Oh my gosh. We have everything from a couple of 16-foot ski boats to a 26-foot cabin cruiser to a uh, 28-foot houseboat. Uh, we've got a few surprises that will be in the mix for probably spring. We've got a couple of bigger boats that are going to be coming in. Um, our, one of our prime attractions is an alien. It's actually created out of a uh, an old playground play toy. Oh, I, I thought you were talking about the politically incorrect uh, undocumented workers. No, they're only there during the daytime. This one is there 24-7. Um, and the beauty of this quarry is it's unexplored. Every diver that goes into that quarry has the opportunity to find things and let us know what they found that we have not found. It's 21, 21 surface acres. It's a pretty large quarry. And there is, there's a lot of bottom that has not been touched. It is it is a gravel quarry, so it, it does not have the visibility that your, your cut limestone quarries have, and the visibility is variable. I've seen as much as 25 foot of viz. I've seen areas where it was like our dive last uh, fall in the St. Joe. <laughs> so but the beauty it, it, of it is it's, it's water, it's close to a lot of divers, and I'm really looking forward to when it's open during the week so that divers get that urge on a Tuesday night. They get out of work, it's been a long day, and they just want to get wet. They can come out and get wet. Um, the quarry so far, we I've done electronic mapping, and I've found the deepest part to be about 34. It averages about 20 to 25. Um, we're currently working some arrangements with uh, some of the local companies. We've got a campground not too far from there. We're trying to work a diver's discount. Um, some of the local merchants are talking about possibly putting coupons to go with the uh, check-in envelopes to where you finish diving. And, you, you know, what do divers want to do when they finish diving? Two things I can think of. Get something to eat and a nice, cool, frosty adult beverage. And we've got a couple of local companies that are really close to Corey that are currently considering putting coupons in so divers can come and satisfy those two urges. Excellent. So were there any obstacles that you had to overcome to get the quarry open? Um, there were some, and I won't go into details with that. Um, I trend away from politics, but uh, once once communication was made with, with some of the community leaders and they started seeing what divers could bring into the community, they have stood behind and supported 100%. Um, I, I cannot speak enough for the city council. The park service director, uh, I'm sorry, the service director, the parks director, a few other people with the parks department that have really stepped up and are supporting bringing diving into the local community at a city park. Now, the the one thing I would think, say, say this happened over here on our side of Michigan, and we had a public park and there's a good spot to dive. I have to think that the liability, you know, the city being deadly afraid of being sued by people would be a huge obstacle. Did you have anything you had to work out as, along those lines? Well, there were, there were some issues along the liability concerns. Um, quite a bit of time was spent with the city's attorney. Um, some of the things that, that helped 
Um, things we did not really know going into it that we have learned. The mayor is a diver. The service director is a diver. Several of the council members are divers. And once they realized what we were attempting to do, they stood up and they were like, wow, that would be awesome. And they worked with the city attorney and they drafted a liability waiver that they think is defensible in court. And, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. Well, and diving, that's, that's... Is, diving is is an extreme sport, if you want to call it that. And there are risks. They are definitely calculated risks. And I think that in the end, they looked at it and thought about the conditions we have in the quarry and the possibility and decided that the risk was minimal. Something Well, that that's good that you're able to overcome those obstacles because that's that's what anytime I've done anything with any government organization, if you ask the wrong people and they have enough control, that's what seems to stop it is just that fear of of any sort of liability, right or wrong. And, and there have been obstacles, and I will say that uh, there's one gentleman by the name of Chuck Jackson who is with the City Parks and Cemetery Department. He has been the gateway to solving those obstacles and finding ways to jump around the issues. He's been instrumental in, in converting this from a body of water that the general public could not be around. And this, this park, uh, for a little backgrounder, this park, the T.J. Evans Park, has five quarries on the property. And I will tell you, I threw out the idea of making it a complete dive destination, and we'll just forget that with the fishermen, and that didn't go over so well. <laughs> so we got one quarry to dive in, and we're happy with it. But uh, Now, the other quarry's bigger? No, this is the biggest quarry on the property. Um, there is one quarry that uh, does have better visibility. But Lisa, you come out, we'll find you somebody to dive with. I'll throw Travis in the water with you. <laughs> um, just, I'm sorry, I just got squirreled by the chat room. Normally that's my gig is squirreling the guys on the show, but I just got squirreled. Well, you got um, to have those independently moving eyes so you can watch the chat room and then the show notes at the same time. Yes. But I, I will say it's, to me, the benefit of this quarry opening is giving more divers access to diveable water where they can go into a semi-controlled environment, refresh their skills, or just get wet and go explore. And the great thing is the majority of this quarry is unexplored. Every time I dive there, I find something new. Just looking I've, for I've that chest it. of gold. Yes. Lisa, I'm so jealous. Ah. Anyway, squirreled. But uh, there's definitely uh, plenty of trash in the quarry. Um, people sneaking in when it was a functioning quarry. There's plenty of bottles that are out there, cans. We pulled some interesting bottles that I have yet to identify. They're definitely beer bottles, but I can't identify the embossing on it. We have yet to find a golf ball. I'm going to probably seed it. Yeah, it what, what kind of quarry is it without golf balls? I will say there are some megalodon teeth. Oh. <laughs> I won't say they're natural, and I will say that they're in some areas that are definitely, you will find them. They're on, this thing has, this quarry has got some interesting topography on the bottom, and there are some mounds, because back in the day when you would dredge, we didn't have GPS back then, so they would run a dredge line, they would come back and shift over, and they didn't overlap, so there was a gap. So you have these gravel ridges. They're really interesting. Uh, a lot of fish nests over the top, and some of those gravel ledges may or may not, I cannot confirm nor deny, may hold megalodon. I just now, hope nobody claims that we have megalodons in Newark, Ohio. <laughs> At least live ones. Now, so when they were doing coring, they didn't pump out the water and then mine it like a lot of the quarries we see. This was 
a wet quarry where they just drag a bucket along the bottom and scooped out the gravel. Well, we're currently doing a lot of uh, a lot of research into that. Um, American Aggregates is a company that was quarrying that, and evidently they originally were dry quarrying it, and when they got to a certain depth and they exposed the springs, it started to flood. And that's what we're currently finding out. This, this place was quarried in the, from what I'm learning, from the mid-50s through the late 60s. Once it started to flood, they went to wet mining, and they were actually running a barge dredge. And I'm hoping the company actually has photographs. They're still still working on developing the information for us, and they've been very, very, very forthcoming with everything about what they had done in that quarry. It's just records records keeping back in the you know 50s and 60s weren't what they are today, yeah. where we have digital cameras and so forth. Yeah, you, you probably almost have to find uh, family members. Uh, who worked there and see and if they got the, photos. We actually had that occur this weekend. Um, the article the paper put out Saturday evening. Sunday, we had a couple of people come out and say, you know, I used to work here, and you know, I'm going to have to go back and dig through and see what I can find. So who knows what we're actually going to find. And right now, the temperatures in the quarry are phenomenal. And it's I almost get sick when I get in the water because it's too warm. Uh, surface is 82 to 84. The platforms around 15 foot are sitting at like 76. Wow. <laughs> I did a dive on uh, Saturday to go retrieve a lost weight pocket, to locate and retrieve a lost weight pocket. I went in in shorts and a t-shirt and did a 35-minute dive. Oh, nice. It's ah. it's sickening how warm that water is. It's ew. Hopefully this winter it'll ice over. Um, we do currently have a little bit of algae bloom going on, and I think that's because of the mild winter we had. So I'm hoping this winter we get great ice. And I think Mac knows what comes with great ice. Great ice diving. Great ice diving. Yeah, because this proves visibility. As far as size-wise, Mac, this kind of reminds me of uh, Singer Lake. Okay. Wouldn't you say? That'd be nice. Yeah, but I mean, Singer Lake's another one of those where we get the algae bloom, and if you dive it in the summer, it's just poop for visibility. I mean, dark at 20 feet, uh, but in the winter, a whole different experience. Well, I, I'm still trying to figure out the the cycle of visibility and how to predict where we will have visibility. It's very random. I've been out there one day and had 10, 15 foot of visibility about the next day. In the same area, I've got eight. It's it's really an, an odd the I don't really know the cycle of the body of water yet. It's it's kind of weird. Yeah. Well, and and also I can I was talking to somebody at a dive shop a few weeks back, and they were mentioning that they worked at a very popular dive uh, destination in Florida that is similar to a quarry, and they had done they had actually mechanically improved the visibility. So I can put you in contact with that guy if you want to learn their techniques. And they're they're a very well known uh, location and school who ran that spot. Because when he was telling me about well, it, I'm like, really? They they were able to substantially biggest, improve the visibility. The biggest problem with those those methods is the cost. We're dealing with 21 surface acres, so any method that we have. The cost is phenomenal, so we're pretty much stuck with what we have. Mm-hmm. We have to rely on Mother Nature being friendly to us. Um, there are some, some areas of runoff that are currently being they're under undergoing control to stop runoff, which will help. But it's water; it's yeah, wet. Now, now you you don't have ha- uh, homes along this lake, do you? No, it no. is a very very wild environment. 
Yeah. So very I, peaceful. I, I think you're at an advantage right there with not having homes because I think a lot of what, like if I if I'm going to compare this lake to pawpaw, well I think does pawpaw and is everybody who's got that green lawn in their backyard that goes to the lake, and they're fertilizing the heck out of it all year. All that goes into the lake. We have no fertilizer runoff whatsoever. It's all just natural silting from runoff down the road. And that's being handled right now by the city, which will improve the viz. Well, and then this winter, we're due for a good ice over, which will just help drastically. Yeah. Well, the, the, the winter is always kind of a great reset time. Plus, that's when you take all your, uh, your uh, brochure photos. You do that in the winter. Well, of course. <laughs> of course. I learned that from another quarry operator. Yes. Yes, I think I know him. Yeah, I think you do. But I'll say if anybody wants any additional information, all they have to do is contact us. We do have a uh, a phone that is dedicated for the quarry on the weekends. It'll be manned during the week. It goes to voicemail, and we check it frequently. They can just call it 740-616-9945. Or they can find us on the web at northpointquarry.com and on Facebook. All the cool guys are on Facebook, so we had to. Yep. Just search for North Point Quarry. And there's some photographs on Facebook. What was that phone number again? Uh, the phone number is 740-616-9945. That was 616 there. 740-616-9945. Yep. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that, that's that's another spot in Ohio I'm going to have to come and visit. I still I still haven't visited White Star yet, so I'm going to have to visit White Star, and now I've got to visit uh, North Point Quarry. We're going to have to get you back down here. Yeah, I'm going to have to you, find a way. So sometime before the ice forms, I need to find my way down there. No, maybe in October we'll uh, figure out how we're going to get to Cooper yeah. and... Uh, well, you know, we 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 could do. Maybe I could just take a couple extra days off because uh, we're going to do that Cooper River dive. Uh, you, me, Rich are going to at least be on that. Is Bill still going to go? Um, I think Bill is in. I've been talking to him lately, and it sounds like he is healing well. Excellent. So, so what we could do is we could plan like a. I could come down a day early, you know, hit the quarry, and then that uh, just just of course just to verify that my gear is still working. But of course. Well, let's let's go ahead and jump in the show. We talked about last week's dives. We do have some uh, other sections, but maybe we'll mix it up a little bit. So in the two weeks since we've last gotten together, Mac, you've prob- you must have had about 20 dives. Oh, one or two. <laughs> <laughs> so what have you been diving lately? Well, I think the last time we covered any diving was, what, uh, probably the 12th. That's what we missed. So if you count the diving before that, we've dove the Havana. We've got the South Pier. We've dove the River Upstream into the French Paper Dam. Gull Lake was a real good uh, Wednesday night dive for Sass again. Uh, we've been diving again the St. Joe River Niles up at Bond Street at the canoe launch. It's uh, down by the French Fort where they're doing the archaeological dig. Uh, we went out to Pawpaw and did some mapping looking for those two wrecks. Uh, we went out and mapped uh, Baroda, uh, Singer Lake in Baroda and validated those three wrecks that are in there, the big ones. Mm-hmm. And we dove Singer Lake the next day because the visibility was so good. Well, I also forgot Lake 16 had a dive on that one also. <laughs> then we did the Singer Lake dive the next day, 
And uh, we had real good visibility, but at 20 feet, you needed your light. And that's exactly where the thermocline was. So leaky wetsuit was great. Reference temperature 74. Uh, let's see. Then, of course, you know, you were on that one. We dove the uh, Muskegon, and then we dove the breakwater out of Michigan City. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, say, last night's dive, well, Wednesday night dive, part of Sasses. I was in Fisher Lake in Three Rivers, and that was a neat one. You come right off the boat launch there, and you go right into about 40 foot of water. Now, that was Sister Lake, you said? No, uh, Fisher Lake in Three Rivers. It's a little over an hour's drive from here. Now, is that the one that we're referring to as the waste treatment lake? Fisher Lake? Not as far as I know. <laughs> oh, well, I, I thought that uh, while I was out that there was a, a dive at the waste treatment. Well, I, I dove downstream of that, and then we on the dive that we were up uh, at the canoe launch, after we finished that one, we went down the South Bend. Uh-huh. And we checked into two different locations that uh, we've been remiss in going to. But oh, that, the water. That location uh, in South Bend you, we were talking about? Yeah, there's a bottle collecting part. And then there was another section uh, where some uh, detector people had actually found some uh, gold coins. Oh. So we were sort of scoping out the area. Uh-huh. And I am really surprised nobody ever looked at the picture we took uh, last week. And all it was is the back of a pickup truck, and nobody asked anything about the truck. So I'm no, very I, curious. No, I, I saw that photo, but the the post, and, and we're talking in code, everybody. You you need to do is go to the mudclub.scubaobsessed.com website and hit treasure, and you're going to be able to see, depending on where you listen to this podcast. Right now, it's the second one down. It could be a while, but there's a a photo of a pickup truck with its tailgate down. And there's a dive buoy and some dive gear, but there's a a, a cube type object, presumably made of steel. <coughs> it was made of steel. Uh, now, and was the there a little fancy tall. knob on the front that uh, with tumblers, or not really? It used to be. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but it was a good day. So we went from there. That's when we went up to to South Bend and checked out the other bottle site. We would have detected it also, but the water level in a side creek or channel, uh, you could walk in it and you could see all the rocks. So it was not, it was, scum level was terrific. Meaning we need a real good flood to wash that out so we can start diving it again. Also, uh, so it's kind of like it a lot of cruds kind of collected in that spot. Yeah. So more from the biological. Then we went back and I, uh, that motor I brought up last year by the Twickenham Dam or a bridge. Somebody, of course, did take that motor. But I showed them where the big signs were and where the, the sewage plant was. So when you see the sign about the biological hazard and not to dive it or swim it or drink or fish immediately after a big rain. Mm-hmm. So I, I made sure you knew where that was. And we picked out two more sites that we have access to and parking to dive the river down there. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, I like the site we've been diving, but it wouldn't be too bad to go and visit some other sites. Right. And you haven't been out there since I sort of uncovered that truck. Oh, no. Did you spend a little bit of time uh, visiting our Model T? Yes, I did. And was there an engine in it? No engine, damn it. Yeah, I was kind of in a feeling that that, that kind of felt like a junk wreck to me. Oh, it, it definitely was. But I found another door, and not from that truck. Oh. Downstream, I, I sort of went down towards the sewage plant. You need to go down that way if you haven't been that way. I've been <laughs> to, right to the, the, the outtake of the sewage plant. Okay, then you saw those big drums that have been cut in half yeah okay there's some neat stuff out there yeah because that was a spot i didn't realize i was that far down because 
it's all depending on how far from the bank you are when you go down as to what it looks like. Yes. Because I got to a point where I was almost confused. I'm like, because I thought I was way farther upstream. And then, you know, of course, it's such a shallow dive that on an 80, it's about, you could get about three hours. Same and, and I was getting to the point where I was about halfway down. And when you have to swim up with current, that can be quite a haul. And then so I popped up for a second. I thought, oh, here, I passed the outtake, which mentally I also tried to stay above, even though it wasn't outflowing. Right. Uh, just just feel like I, I don't need to be adding to any bacteria count. No. Coming what we there. want to do is get a, a couple more guys who want to go up, and we're going to launch at the first bridge and drift dive all the way down under both bridges, under the railroad trestle, and come out there. But we're going to need cars at both ends because that's a long way to walk in their wetsuit. I've done it before. I, I think what we almost need to do if we're, if we're going to do that is, is, is organize some sort of picnic. You know, yeah, because you've got, you got plenty of shade and stuff. Yeah, so you get some shore support, and you bribe them with food yeah. so they're willing to be, stay at the exit point long enough to pick you up. Or, like I said, we just have the cars already down there, so we can just drive <laughs> back. You're anticipating we're not going to get anybody volunteering. Uh, unless there's a lot of shade and it ain't hot like it's been, my wife will talk about it and take a look at the pictures I bring home. <laughs> She's smart that way. So the question that we're all asking, Mac, is the front of that box, did it have a little dial, maybe a handle? It used to. <laughs> it used to. Yes, it used to. Yeah, I, I noticed when I zoomed in, there looks to be like a little tiny stub or nub coming out the front. Yeah, that looks the dial like, was that looks, like, an, that looks like an exit. That looks like an exit wound from a bullet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was a, a dial hole there, and then below it, that you can't see very well, is where you would have put another key in to help move the tumblers once you unlocked it. Mm. As a side note, that, 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 that is now a piece of junk that is in the uh, metal pile over at a certain individual's house. Is that at a certain individual's house? Where it will stay because he cl he keeps everything he ever touches. No, it was a different one. Oh. But he, this gentleman had the the torches and stuff we needed to um, encourage it to open. <laughs> so while we think about that, we can. Uh, but the only dive that I I mean you you dove so many places uh, in the last two weeks, and I think uh, about the only dive I've gotten in was the one this last week in which Jim Cle we had a whole flotilla come out. We had three boats. We had Bob Kurt. Uh, you, me, Jim, Kleeman, uh, Ken. Uh, who, who was that from Waltz who came and dove with us? We had Lucy. We had um, yeah, Lucy. Uh, I think it was Robert uh, Meister. Okay, Robert Meister. Yeah. And then uh, say Sweeney, Maggie. We had Maggie out there. Yeah, Maggie was on a boat. That's, that's, I think that's actually the first time on a boat that I've seen Maggie. Yep. And then and we also had a, and Dave Gallion. Dave Gallion. Yeah. And and who else? Who was who was that? The other female diver. Mary Beth. Mary Beth. Mary Beth came out. How? What did she think of the wreck? Um, she enjoyed it. Uh, again, that was her first big lake dive, first wreck dive, first limited visibility dive. Uh, uh -huh. And I did get a snorkel over there by the uh, breaker water, too. Yeah. The breaker water, I mean, for rookie divers, I think we almost need to do it the other way around. Yeah, to get them into it. Yeah. And, and the visibility, considering last week we had Dwayne Beach, what, 20 foot? And uh -huh. two weeks before, we had double that. Yeah. Not yeah. to mention, what, 78 degree water? Oh, with no oh yeah. Yeah, we, we lost a lot of visibility. The thermocline this week, end, which is why it was so bad on the Muskegon, was at the bottom. Because there were spots in the wreck where wow. you would, 
if you went to the lower parts of the wreck, which, I mean, the wreck's not that tall. The, wreck, the high spot above the bottom is maybe 10 feet above. And if you were at where the sand had eroded away, like around the propeller, the bottom of the propellers was cold. So the thermocline was right there at the bottom. So That's a nice prop, isn't it? That is. Well, and, and the thing is, when the visibility is low, mentally you don't realize that the whole thing is the prop. Yeah. It's such a twisted metal wreck because it's been clamshelled that you really have a hard time seeing. And today I was actually searching for diagrams of the wreck. I'll send you some if you like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if, if, if you do. Uh, the state of Indiana used to have a PDF, which was the archaeological dig on the wreck, mm-hmm. but I can't find it anymore. Oh, I think I have a copy of that. Yeah, because I can find a brochure which shows like a really tiny photo of it. Yeah. But I'd like to have it because that, that kind of will lead into the topic we'll have a little bit coming up here in a little bit, which is underwater you communication. I sent you, right? You got the uh, scan pictures I sent? Yes. I sent you four of them? Yep. yep. Okay. Yep. That way everybody can make sure they get right on the wreck. Just follow the one coordinates, drop your anchor, and you're right in the middle of it. Yeah. But when I saw kind of the outline of the Muskegon on the one diagram, I'm like, oh, that's what happens. Because it's really almost like two wrecks uh, connected by a mast or a boom. Yeah. And if you get on one side of the wreck and don't realize how to get back to the other, which is what happened today, uh, this last time on it. This is the first time I have not been able to come up the anchor line of a wreck. I I actually had to float my safety sausage and uh, surface off the wreck. And and Robert did the same thing because you guys got separated. Yeah. Well, I was actually, my, my buddy was Kirk. And this is one of those dives where 20, 25 minutes in, him and I were like attached at the hips. You know, we never got more than five or six feet apart. And even at five or six feet, that was almost enough to lose visibility. We did a couple penetrations. There is one of the boilers that you can swim through, which I swear some other times I've looked at and said, there's no way. And this time it looked huge and I was able to swim through no problem. So that was a nice um, spot. But he and I, we, we kind of crossed over another set of divers from our group and the visibility kind of lowered for a little bit. And he just got outside of my vision and I could never connect with him again. And after the dive, we talked and he said that, you know, within a minute, a minute, within a couple seconds of realizing he didn't see me, he stopped. And then he's got, you know, very high intensity light. And I even had my dim little light out so that it would made it easier for him to identify it was me. Not that I was really cutting through the the silt or visibility, but at least when you looked at me, you could see I looked different than the rest of the divers. But once we got separated, I could never find him again. And as a side note, though, we understand that we're going to get separated, and it's not one of those you lose your buddy, you come up and you look after three minutes, because that's like we're basically solo diving together. So it right. wasn't a bad thing that you got separated. No, and and there's there's divers on the surface of the air. Uh, we know how long we're going to be down, what we're diving. So uh, we had three boats in position, the length of the boat. So we had plenty of options. Yeah, yeah. And then you know, like like you said, I'm I'm diving the safety sausage. So if I got, you know, if I got in trouble, I would just inflate that, float it to the surface, and when you saw it wasn't attached to a diver, then somebody would know to come down. But uh, it's it's a fairly, I mean, I'm going to say it's a fairly safe wreck. I mean, there's spots where you could get entangled, like if you had gone in a penetration of the boiler and gotten hung up. But I wouldn't do that if I wasn't with another diver at that point in time. And then there are a lot of overhangs where there's masts and uh, stuff coming out. 
there the sand had opened up some artifacts. So if you like to see some of the materials used in the construction, you know, I see these little bits of metal and you, you, you have to try to figure out what parts they were too. Uh, one looked like a little, call it a pie wedge, and one side of it was textured and the other side was smooth and it was steel. And I'd love to know what that went to, if that was like a hatch cover, you know, uh, like maybe I'm, I'm picturing that maybe where you, you threw coal into a boiler, maybe that was a way of controlling the airflow or something in. But, uh, you know, th- there's some like little bits of chain and some spikes that were down there. Every time I dive that wreck, I see something different on it. And then we drove, we dove the breakwater uh, once again. The visibility wasn't as good as before, but a lot of fish. If you like Great Lake fish and you want to see them, that's one of the best spots. You know, we saw bass. Um, a few fish I'm going to need to get out a guide for because I don't know what they are. They had kind of a really big, high forehead on them, kind of silvery color, then a good 12 to 14 inches in length. So I'm not sure what they were, but uh, I'm trying to think of what we found down there. And, you know, we, we found a couple golf balls. One was seated, one was natural. Well, you, you got that uh, jet ski, the stand-up jet ski with a nice engine nuts down there. Yeah, I saw that. That Yeah, I, I didn't mess with that. There's a lot of stuff where there's rope that goes in the bottom. And I did, you know, try and excavate a few of them, but it, it, wherever it goes, who knows. And then, a bit of uh, aluminum and a lot of mass from sail, sailboats out there. Yeah, I, I did find the mass. In fact, I got some of the uh, rigging off, off the mass there. You took some of the rigging? These, these are uh, modern uh, aluminum mass that's wedged into the uh, into the, the wall there. I would have brought up the whole mast, but I just didn't feel like hauling it all the way back to the boat. Nice. That's been considered. I mean, there's a couple of good sections of mass we thought about bringing up. Yeah. And, 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 part. And, and you can tell that when it went down, it was under sail. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because the, the sail fabric is still in the mast. So you've got... Uh, you got the mast and you got the main boom on it. And I'm going to guess by the length of the mast that that was about a 17 to 19 foot sailboat. Uh, aluminum, I, I'm going to say probably 1980s to 1990s construction because I used to have a sailboat like that. So, uh, yeah, th- th- that hurt that day that that happened to whoever owned that boat. They, they That could not have been a, a fun time. Now, now, Mac, did you notice that on the way in the breakwater on the west side there? on that river is pilings with concrete cap. So there's there's wooden pilings and there's a concrete cap sitting on top. Nice. But, but Mac, did you hear me talking about the, the pilings there? On the west side of the river are wooden pilings and they've got a concrete cap on them. I went around to the, to the um, east end just uh-huh. before she went to the channel and the current was a little choppy there and we know we had a little wave action, but you could look through the pilings to the opposite side of the of the cap. Yep. Not a place I would want to go that day. No, not that day. The ability and the roughness. But uh, at that end, there was a tremendous number of carp, buffalo, and cat. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think with a dry summer, that would have been a good spot to actually want to take a look at. I know when we were diving that outside breakwater, because we, we dove down to the end, and just you could tell that the water from the river was starting to mix because visibility was getting poor real close to the end there. Mm-hmm. Oh, so did, did you have any other memorable dives in the last two weeks, Mac? Something that just... Well, we had a good time in the river. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, um, I believe they're going to be on our South Bend trip this week, this Sunday, on the wreck. And I see Mr. Jim just got online. 
Yeah. He's, uh, oh, is he online now? Yeah, I see it uh, just popped up on mine. But there's supposed to be an article on the shipwreck. And uh, the guy talked to Jim. He gave me a buzz. And I tried to reinforce to him that it would really be neat if uh, interested people in doing archaeological discovery would contact the preserve and get it so they'd have enough people to get together so they could do a dig on what's left of the year. Nice. Excellent. Yeah, because I was gonna, I was kind of wondering if the uh, preserve had been able to get anybody, uh, get a group together and dive on that. Uh, I've not seen a lot of activity at this particular time. I know they were trying to get a little more support, and uh, hopefully this will be one of the efforts that might be fruitful for them. Excellent. So, Jim, are you there? I am here. I finally got the uh, Skype reloaded on my computer. Oh, excellent. Now, uh, do you have anything new to report from the preserve? Uh, not at the moment. We've had some uh, publicity in the last couple of weeks. Um, and Sunday, there will be an article in the South Bend Tribune about Max Rack and the preserve. But nothing really new. We hope to get out this weekend and move a little sand on Max Rack on Sunday. I need to get up there and help move some sand. Yes, you do. Bring your shovel. It, it's a blast. I mean, it, it, it's like I, I keep saying, you know, I, I don't want to go and pull weeds from my yard or pick up trash, but you put it under underwater, I'm all in. <laughs> yeah, I just need to find a time. I've got a couple of uh, relatively new divers that don't suck that uh, would be well-suited for doing that and would enjoy it. Well, that'd be great. Yeah. Come on up. Yeah, yeah, Mac, well, that, that link you just sent me is the one that I already had. Okay. They, they used to have another document that was uh, like eight or nine pages, and it's those same drawings, but they're blown up. You know, it's, So this is probably the one from when you went last summer to their, uh, they had like a open house. I just picked that one off my, my item here. Yeah. I'll look for that other one. Yeah. Now, in the state of Indiana, they've got a plan where they're really trying to do uh, they they actually show an example of what Lake Erie is in Ohio is doing uh, with trying to make uh, diving a a, lo- uh, a destination. So they're they're trying to do some sort of preserve type of process that kind of unifies all these wrecks and gets people on them. Because Indiana has a quite chunk of uh, wrecks right there. Okay, so I, I know we're missing some wrecks, but we'll we'll, we'll have to talk about them. Uh, when they come up in the following weeks. Now, oh, now that we'll be right. back on a regular schedule. What's that, what's that, Jim? Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think we've been online since I dove in New Jersey, have we? Yeah, no. you talked. Yeah, you talked about the flower wreck. That's right, the flower, okay. Yep. So, yeah, and the, he had fo- found the uh, the pewter mug, which I was extremely jealous of. Yeah, I haven't heard any more about that. They did have it on their uh, dive shop's website, but... Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so now. Jim, you, you got in some good uh, good dives while you were in Jersey? I got a couple in on a wreck called the Almirante, or the Flower, as it's known locally, in 60 feet of water. Nice. Now, now I noticed that MSRA has been finding, or if you look on their website, there's a lot of wrecks that don't have any information associated with them. Uh, are, have you heard any rumors that any of those are going to be publicized coming up? Uh, no, I haven't heard much of anything from MSRA. I know they've been doing their search this year because we ran into Dave Trotter when he was they were out searching, but I haven't heard anything about the here for what they found anything. 
Okay. Yeah, because I just noticed there were some new dots showing up on their map with names I hadn't heard of before. So I don't know if that was this season's or last season's. I'll have to and, go out uh, there. But, yeah. Jim, would you really hear anything from Trotter if he found something? Uh, when he's working with MSRA, yeah, they usually they don't release numbers right away, but they do like to advertise their finds. I want his book of numbers. Yeah, who doesn't? Guy's probably the most prolific wreck finder in Great Lakes history. Did uh, I'm assuming that Ralph Wellbanks has left the area. Did he Ralph find anything? For, yeah, he was in for about six weeks, um, left in the spring. And uh, when I talked to him the day before he left, he said they uh, didn't have anything to report this year. Wow. You know, they uh, spent the year kind of expanding their grid, just uh, no really new areas. They just kept uh, widening their search pattern of areas they'd already covered, you know, just make them wider and longer, uh, filled a few holes that they had in their pattern, but uh, didn't really come up with anything new this year, which is a real surprise. <laughs> Quite. Now, could that, Quite. Be co- could that be code for we found stuff but not what we were looking for? Um, probably not, because in the past, when Ralph has found things he hasn't been looking for, he just passes the numbers on and keeps going. Wow. You know, and the world will go back and take a second look, but, uh, you know, I, I, I feel that if he had found something this year, he'd have said something, and he was kind of frustrated. I, I mean, I can understand that, because they, well, they had some good weather, other than maybe a, a weekend or so, where, you know, the great mowing the lawn. Uh, they they did mow a lot. They were out in the lake quite a bit, but they uh, just kept going deeper and no real success for uh, Northwest 2501, which is what he was looking for. Now, are they using any sub-bottom profilers, or are they just pulling uh, like a magnetometer? Uh, he's using a uh, side scan fish with a, I'm not sure what frequency, but it's one that would give him a lot of detail. Uh, doesn't cover as wide a range as what Trotter does. Uh, he's also towing a magnetometer, so he's using both. Now, when Trotter's out running, he runs a much wider uh, scan pattern, but he's looking for huge targets compared to what uh, Ralph is looking for. Right. Well, looking for that wreck, I'm sure the biggest thing you're going to find is going to be engine parts, and that's going to be the hit. Yeah, provided the engine wasn't, what, exploded. Well, there were more than one. Yeah. Yeah, so that that one's going to be, I, I, I mean, it depends on where it went down and how shallow it was. If it was shallow enough, it, it may be covered in sand, never to be exposed. But uh, Well, the sands are always shifting. Yeah. yeah and so. I think when it comes up, it's going to be kind of like a, another wreck. Starts with a C that everybody's yeah. been looking for. Yeah. Well, there's that, that one. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> well, the other three thing that I, I keep thinking about that they haven't been in kind of the right spot is because of, of wrecks that we or or objects that we know are down there that they haven't come across. And specifically, right. the the bomber. We know that's out there, and that one is not. You know, should not be all broken apart. At least. Yeah, he hasn't been shallow enough to find the bomber. Yeah, I mean, that could be it, too. I mean, they could be out out so deep that they're not seeing some of that stuff. You know, and that's the beauty of the Great Lakes. We have well over 6,000 known wrecks, and Jim, I think, probably has a better handle on this, but I'm I'm going to say we, we've found, what, five to 600, maybe? 
Yeah, probably more, a few more than that, but yeah, the vast majority are still out there. The problem is most of those wrecks uh, ended up onshore or near shore and have been covered by sand and beaten up or pounded into pulp. Um, you know, the intact ones that went down in deeper water are the ones we're still looking to find, and there's probably a thousand of those or more out there. Yeah, I like looking at... Uh... Like when when you you see MSRA website, I mean it's a site that if you haven't been to, you need to go to. But when you just look and you see the clusters of dots, and and I my eyes are drawn to the area where there are no dots, and right. so I believe that that spot where there are no dots, there's no wrecks, or we just haven't found them yet. Okay. Well, we, we talked about last week's dies, but let's jump now. I I've got a link to paste. Let me see if it will come in correctly. I bet it's going to. Darren, break. before you before you leave last week's dives, yeah, I would like to uh, say guest eight in the chat room, Travis. Yeah. Last night he did his first river dive. Oh wow! Um, little little tiny creek that runs behind the shop, and he found treasure. Well, that's you have to find in a river dive. He found a little bit of treasure, Excellent. but uh, it was his first. I just had to throw it out there because. You know, he got into a river for the first time, and I think he really enjoyed it. Now, now were your instructions uh, drop down? Uh, if you're not on the gravel, go to the left, you know, face the current. I thought about that, but I just couldn't bring myself to saying, you damn Yankee, drop down and go left. But <laughs> it was a really tiny creek. Probably the deepest hole was six feet. Great, great way to start into a river. Oh, yeah. Th- th- those and are fun, too. Because who, who else is crazy enough to dive them? That's, that's where you can really uncover some things. And he found treasure. He found a cast iron cap, you know, out at, out at your curb where they have the water valve when your street, you know, you're getting your water from the city. Mm-hmm. He found a cast iron cap treasure. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, John, Captain Tom. Now, now is he married? Um, he's looking for an amicable female dive buddy. I'll leave it okay. at that. I was going to say, because if, if you're married and you find those objects, those are the things that they ask you not to bring home, you know, which you frame on the wall and put a plaque underneath and everything of how historically significant that cap is. Well, it is very historically significant. It is his first river find. <laughs> well, way to go. Congratulations. And I'll also say also his brother certified today as an open water diver. So, so now he's got like a built-in dive buddy. He has a built-in dive buddy. Keep keep expanding the sport one dive buddy at a time. Yep. Well, that's good. Uh, now, on the photo of the week, uh, specifically, Mac, I'm going to paste this one into the uh, chat room. Uh, it's a photo, but it's, it's actually an article. But I want you to say, do you recognize that photo? You're posting it where? I, I posted it in the chat room. I've also posted it in the Skype for you. Okay. Because I, I was this is I was actually searching for some information on the Muskegon shipwreck when this one came in. I'm like, huh? Oh, you mean the pictorial, the picture of the maps? Yeah. Yeah, we we've got those same ones, don't we? <laughs> Why well, is that not yours? No, that's not. That came out of the museum there in Michigan City. Oh, I thought that was your map. I blew them up to use them as my own little reference, and we've got them posted on our site. See, I thought that was your map, because when I saw that, I'm like, hey, that looks like Mac's map. (laughs) Nope. It's it's like you always add to somebody else's work. It's easier to uh, take somebody else's finished product and and play with it than generate your own. Ah, okay. 
The key item on this one, like I said, the pins do not represent the location. There is no GPS coordinates associated with any of the one, with any of the pin markers. There are approximate locations for some of the ones on shore, like the Wheeler, the David Dowles. Those are referenced, but by three miles from and 300 yards of water offshore, that kind of stuff. I mean, you're going to be hunting them. Yeah. So I, I would love to get, because I was looking at the, the ones off Michigan City. There's about five or six wrecks there, and we only dived the one wreck. Uh, yeah, I, I think I posted a little item in there about uh, I'm going to get the locations for the five in that area, meaning the Wheeler, the Dows, the Tugboat, the Muskegon, and for the life of me, I just can't think of the uh, the Marshall. Yeah. Well, the, there's also one where they've got a uh, they got a front of a boat that's that's unnamed, which is in that brochure that you actually just sent me. Okay. It's they just let me see if I can pull that back up. I think I still have that going. Uh, because that's what they're, that's what Indiana, yeah, right there. If you go on the second page of that brochure, mm-hmm. uh, map of unknown shipwreck number four. Yeah. Which, if they're saying unknown shipwreck number four, that means there's a one, a two, and a three. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah. At least I'm assuming figure, they didn't. When they say shipwrecks, a lot of times, like, they basically got on fire either in the docking or, or near shore. They hauled them out. They let them burn. And they either either sank or they towed them out someplace else to let them sink. Yeah, well, that's what the Muskegon It's interesting. Is. Those are wonderful treasures of the past when they were a hunk of junk when they were sank, but they're treasures now. Exactly. Yeah, that that one photo of the wheeler kind of listing up to one side, sitting out there. Okay, so that's the that was a, that's a photo. I just love that map of the pin. So it just kind of gives you an idea. You know, and those are the known ones. And then yeah. there's a video, which this is a whale shark who just happens to uh, have figured out a, a good way for a quick snack. That's a cute photo. I watched that one. That was neat. Yeah. So so we'll have that in the show notes. So make sure you head over to the Scuba Obsessed website and click on the show notes, which probably this week will be late Saturday or Sunday because I'm going to be traveling again early in the weekend. But uh, I'll get that posted up there. But, uh, yeah, that, that little uh, shark figured out a quick way of getting a lunch. Well, especially since they always used to say they're plankton eaters. Well, he's eating a little bit more than plankton. Well, plankton, fish, <laughs> legs. Yeah, it's all <laughs> proportion. I mean, even a plankton eater is eating protein. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I don't think you could actually call him a vegetarian. But that was an excellent uh, video. Okay. Well, we, we've gone on for almost two hours tonight. Wow. On a roll. We're on a roll. Well, we had plenty to talk about. And we could have kept going. I mean, if we if we went each dive one by one, we we could be here for a while. Oh, we did have uh, uh, an email. So uh, the email was sent to us. Uh, as actually, it was uh, via Twitter, and it said, "Could you share with us any tips or recommendation for underwater communication sy- sy- symptoms?" I'm gonna say symptoms. Systems. And this is from uh, I'm gonna say Safe Al Thani. And I'm completely slaughtering his name. His first name is S-A-I-F. Last name is A-L hyphen T-H-A-N-I. And he's from Qatar. And he was talking about underwater communication systems. But I thought that would kind of open it up to all sorts of uh, different ideas. So, uh, you know, for example, the, there's a variety of ways of communicating underwater. Uh, I mean, the first one that comes to mind is the old hand signals, which I have to say I'm not the best at hand signals. I know the, the common ones. And, and with diving with the same dive buddies all the time or same group of people, you, we kind of only use certain hand signals. And uh, when I dove with uh, Jim's friend from the preserve, 
and he was actually using some proper hand signals. Like like the thumbs up, I always keep forgetting is surface. I keep thinking that it's like, hey, it's a great dive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, great dive. You know, give him the thumb sign back, keep swimming on. But uh, hand so hand signals is a gr- is a great method. Uh, and then when Jim and I were in Florida, uh, one of the dive masters on uh, uh, had a light that had some interesting strobe patterns. So if you would, you know, a lot of the tricks to signals and communication is just working on them above the water and then communicating what they're going to mean underneath. So they had some uh, strobes and some, you know, flashy things that if you would decided they would mean something, you know, like come here or stay or go, uh, they'd be handy. Uh, slates and tablets can also be great for underwater communication. And then for sounds, you have uh, tank bangers. And I actually bought a new whistle the last few weeks that's supposed to work underwater. I haven't tried it. They don't. They don't? They don't. So, But it, it says it does. So I, I, I'm determined one of these times I'm going to try it out and, and see if it will. But I think specifically what he was asking about was underwater communication. So, Mac, do you have any experience with any of those? A little bit with all of them, actually. Uh, the first ones we've ever used for underwater work in dark was the, uh, you basically have a transducer you can put down from your boat. So one with the, the rig, it's like a volume mask that had a microphone in it. You could talk and the other individual, if you had the same type of mask, he could listen to you and talk back and you could communicate with the boat. So you could have three or four way conversation. Uh, there's several varieties of those that you can still find. Uh, then, of course, you have the uh, surface supplied, which is the best, but you're using a you know, cable. Mm-hmm. And if you're using search and rescue, especially looking for bodies in the river where you're going to be on a line, that's the, really the only way to go. Because then you have positive communications and feel. What we've been looking at is a cheap recall system. And they're out there. Again, it's an underwater transducer that can broadcast. And by transducer, it could be a loudspeaker in a box as long as you got a volume chamber. Uh, commercial ones can be very expensive. We're looking to make a cheap and dirty one. Uh, a fail-safe recall system, take an M80, make sure it's waterproof, light it, throw it away from the dive flags. You'll hear that bang in the water. That's a cheap way to make an emergency recall. But uh, we do plan to have something later. So if it keeps abreast of us, we'll have something out there, hopefully by the end of this year. Now, when you say underwater recall, is it just going to be a noise or a signal, or are you actually going to have, like, verbal communication? I don't know if you've ever been in the river. If you're up by um, St. Clair, for example, and you're diving towards the end of the boardwalk, you'll be down there, and you'll suddenly hear music, and you're going, where the heck's that coming from? There's a restaurant that's slightly below ground level that has a window out into the river, and you can physically hear everything going on in that building. Because the plate is acting as a transmitter, the vibrations are out from that glass plate out into the river, and you can you can physically hear voice and and song. But it's easier if you make a, a loud recall sound that's unique. Then there's no debate about what did they say. You're if right. You, you know to come up. It's either a squeal or a series of sounds that everybody knows is come back to the boat type. Yeah, yeah, and, and especially where that's handy for us on Lake Michigan is uh, I think Bob was talking about just a couple weeks ago, he was on a dive and he was one of the last ones to uh, come up. And as soon as they come up, it was right in the middle of the storm and they just got off. Now, on there the are ocean a couple technology other... has a bunch. Dive link has a whole bunch. Uh, there's, there's lots of different groups out there. Have you ever heard of glove talk? I have it. Okay. Glove talk is easy, especially whenever it's warm water. All you do is take one of your gloves off 
put your put it over your mouth, put air in it, and then talk. And if the guy's right by you, he can hear exactly what you're saying. And if he takes his glove off, you can communicate that way. And in fact, if you go down to Wolf's, they used to have one. It looked like a mouthpiece you'd put over your mouth. It had a, a chamber or a cavity with a diaphragm. You'd go down, put that over your mouth, blow air in it, and talk. And you darn well could, you could understand. But try the glove talk. It's amazing how well that works. Huh. We'll have to. So, yeah. so hopefully that answers his question on... Uh... Hey, Darren, I've got yeah. a couple things to add to that. Yeah. Um, Mac had mentioned OTS, Ocean Technology. Um, they've got a couple of things. One of them is a buddy phone. It's this yeah. toilet toilet plunger thing that you put your first your second stage into. Um, I've tried them about five times, and I have not gotten good comms out of them. Um, but most of the OTS products, um, I've used OTS products in the Aga Mask. Great, great comms. Not cheap, but you actually can talk underwater. And the Aga mask is a good mask for that. It's you got to be unique to the mask itself too. Right, very much so. Yeah, I like the Aga. That's a nice mask. Now, w- when we talk about comms, does that require a f- uh, full face mask or a hard hat? Yes. No. Well, not the ones we used to have was strictly scuba because it was a well, cavity over the over the, your regulator. That's where the mask is. If I have a picture of mine, I'll let you see what it looked like. I've I've got some pictures of Buddy Phone. Um, which is OTS's most recent offering in that realm, and I've never gotten to work right. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. I'm gonna have to bring them up there, Mac, and you can you can educate me on how to use it right. <laughs> it's really good to do it in a swimming pool first, because with the wireless ones with the box on it, the voice activated, you'd all always have to do a guttural sound uh, to get the audio working, and then continue to talk. Well, the biggest problem biggest problem we're having is. Um, free flows with the second stage for some reason when you put it on to the the comms mask it would free flow yeah if you're if you're doing that especially in cold water absolutely you can get yourself in a world of hurt because you've got that as you're talking you can be breathing out because you're taking more volume and you can stimulate your hose to give you a free flow that's like trying to fill a lift bag at 60 feet with your octopus. You do that, I guarantee you, you're probably going to free flow your, your octopus. Yeah, and, and I don't know. Uh, last time, actually, Travis, who's in the chat room, we played with the uh, the buddy phones. It's the, uh, you have the mask goes on your face, and then you attach your second stage to it like it was a mouthpiece. We couldn't get them to work. They sucked. Yeah. We were probably doing something wrong, but, yeah. but I, I have had great, great success using the OTS stuff with the Augas. Yeah. But like Max said, the wired comms, you know, when you're in surface flood, that is the best. Well, Darren, is, a, is it about that time? You know, I, I think we've delayed it about as much as we can. So I uh, just want to mem- remind everybody, if you could, we always love to have those five-star iTunes reviews. And then also, if you have some friends who haven't listened to the show, please let them know about Scuba Obsessed and also uh, uh, Rich's show, which is excellent, Divers Sync. Uh, have them come and listen. So we like the five-star reviews on iTunes. Also, you can do reviews on TalkShoe. On TalkShoe, we're show 73759. Record Thursdays at 9 o'clock. Rich keeps trying to move me to 9.30 for some reason, but it is at 9 o'clock. And then, so the, the the choice of two jokes. We have one which is a politician joke, and we have another one which is probably a I don't know, call it fishing joke. Well, most politicians are jokes. So how about if we go for the fishing joke? The fishing joke. 
You know, I'm politicians are already a joke. Yeah. I'm with Jim. Okay. So we'll I've had enough Joker politicians. <laughs> I'll I'll save that one. I'll, I'll save the uh, politician one for later then. Okay. Okay. Let it. Let November. It, November. I was say mold, but you know, just uh, well, grow, well, the, grow a good politician stench. I, that yeah. We'll really have, we'll have to add something to it to really get the stink that bad. But okay, so here we go. A lady goes into her local dive shop and sporting goods store to buy a fishing rod to give to her husband for his birthday. A salesman wearing dark glasses with a dog is behind the counter and asks, Can I help you, ma'am? Well, I'd like to buy a fishing rod. Can you tell me about this one, she she answers. The salesman replies, I'm sorry, ma'am, but I'm blind. I cannot see the rod you're referring to. However, if you'll drop it on the counter, I'll tell you all about it as I can tell from the sound it makes. The lady picks up the rod and does what he says and drops it on the counter. He belts, that's a Zebco 2500 fiberglass, six and a half feet, medium action, and that is $15. The lady, wow. She finds another and does the same. Oh, that's an Orion 35C graphite, six-foot light action, best used with ultralight tackle. That one runs $20. Very impressed, the lady decides to buy the second one. As the man is ringing up the sale, the lady loudly passes gas but feels no need to apologize as the salesman is blind and has no idea who she is. The salesman says, that'll be $25. $25? You said 20 Well, that's right, ma'am. 20 for the rod, 3 for the duck call, 2 for the fish bait. I think we have a new bad one. <laughs> that was bad. <laughs> bad. Uh, okay. So, until next week, go out there and get wet. And, and remember, no, and remember, no paddlefish were harmed in the making of this podcast. Thanks, Dave. Call recording has been completed. Did that uh, fill in for you, Jim? Yeah, thank you very much, Dave. I appreciate that.